Today on The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Let me tell you something, parents. When, when parents vie, compete with one another in the family, they undercut one another with children and others, how deadly that is to a marriage. How deadly that is. Favoritism is many times at the root of it. We learned that favoritism in the family is always disastrous. Favoritism in the family always leads to heartbreak. The truth is, favoritism can tear families apart. Welcome to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Today, Dr. Young begins his message called Deception, where he shares practical wisdom from the story of Jacob and Esau to help you guard against habits that can harm your family. Now here's Dr. Ed Young with today's message, Deception. I knew a young family that lived in a suburban area of Atlanta, Georgia. He had a job and a corporation with great future, three children, super wife, active in the church. One night, he was in bed with his wife and they began to debate about the condition of their marriage. In the process, she confessed to her husband that she was having an affair with their dentist. He exploded, jumped out of bed, went to the closet, got his shotgun, loaded it. She was hysterical, screaming, shouting, what are you doing, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to kill him. And he storms down the stairs. She calls 911. He gets in the car. He, he sort of comes to his senses, gets out of the car, walks back up the steps, puts the shotgun back in the closet. By that time, the police had come. To make a long, tragic short story short, he lost his marriage, lost his children, lost his job. Now he had a criminal record. He was totally confused, disoriented, until I heard just a few months back that suddenly, with seemingly little warning, he died. He told me following this tragic event over the telephone, he said, I went back and I timed the amount it took for me to get out of bed, get the shotgun, go down to the car, come to my senses, walk back upstairs, put the shotgun back up. He said it was six minutes, just six minutes. And he said that six minutes totally changed my life and every area. He said, I can't tell you how I would love to go back and have that six minutes over again. How do you define a life? 
His life was defined not by the past or what happened after. It was defined by just a little six-minute period. How do we interpret history? Some of you know I got back from Israel a few months ago. Over in Israel, they have what they call tells. They're little hills that are not made by God. They are ruins of civilizations, cities that have been built on top of cities, on top of cities, on top of cities, and you have these tells. And archaeologists go in there and they cut a, a trench down the middle of them and they can read the layers. And they can tell the Armenians were here, the Romans were here, the Greeks were here by the, by the garbage and, and the ruins and by the, the potsherds, the pottery, and they could date and they can totally replay the history of that site and that region by by reading those layers that are piled up there over thousands and thousands of years. That's how they read history in the past. How do you interpret your life? If I stood somebody up and tell me the story of your life, where would you begin? How would you interpret who you are, where you've been, what your present is, what your past? We can do it many ways. We can do it by, by our name, where we live, we can do it in a lot of different genres, approach to telling your life story or my life story. We've been reading uh, most of us through the Bible. And we have read, if you are up to date with our chronological reading, we've already read through the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And as you are reading the story of these three patriarchs, have you ever seen a more corrupt family in your life? Incest, murder, polygamy, undercutting, lying. I mean, I mean, where, where do you find a family like this? I mean, it is just unbelievable. Did you just read it slick kind of through and say, well, this is the Bible? Isn't that amazing? Amazing. And why is this there? Why, why did God in his word decide to open up and to cut a trench right through the life of these Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Why did he cut a trench through their life? Why did he reveal so much about them? And sometimes you read about incest or about rape, and you say, you know, I, I don't know why God put that in there. I mean, good night. I mean, whew, these are famous names. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, my goodness. You see, God doesn't pull any punches, does he? And when he tells the story of a life, he does it all the way through the Bible. You read the Old Testament with maybe the exception of Joseph. Oh, well, he was a spoiled brat and a megalomaniac. He was young. I forgot that. Maybe Daniel looks pretty good, but look at all the rest of the Old Testament guys and gals, and boy, I'm telling you, you get a pretty mixed bag, do you not, if you read the Bible? What is this all about? It's about God's progressive revelation, working through history, working through human beings, working out his wonderful, beautiful plan of salvation that's available to you and to me today. 
and we look and we study now, Jacob. Now there's a guy. By definition, his name means slick. <laughs> Does. Deceiver. Usurper. Con artist. Robert Redford would not have got the part in the sting because Jacob could have played himself. <laughs> what a low down, dirty, rotten scandal he was and he lived up to his name. So we're going to excavate Jacob. And by the way, we see these personalities not just to understand the Bible and history, we see and study their lives and the Holy Spirit speaks to you and speaks to me and gives us warning and insight as we see how God works all the way through history. And it is a wake-up call for us, a moment of truth for us. And now we look at Jacob. And we're going to look at his life through just four different places in which he stayed, sometime for a short time, sometime for a long time. And perhaps if you were telling the story of your life, you'd say, well, when I live there, when I live there, we can do that with Jake. We won't go all the way through his life because we want to take a nap this afternoon. <laughs> but we'll look at four stations and see what we learn from the life of Jacob. First of all, we see him right at his birth. Look at that, if you would. Right at the beginning of his life. It reads, beginning in Genesis, chapter number 25. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in the tents, and Esau loved, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of the game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Machpelah. We start off where Jacob was born at Machpelah. He was a twin. His twin brother was, as you know, Esau, Jacob and Esau. And there we see they were different, were they not? Jacob a favorite of his mother, oh, Rebecca. He saw a favor of his favorite of his daddy, Isaac. First thing we learn. First thing we learn, the life of Jacob. Favoritism in the family always leads to heartbreak. Favoritism in a family always leads to heartbreak. My three sons, all three of them will tell you they were Joe Best's favorite. <laughs> Why do parents have favorites? It's deadly in the family, ladies and gentlemen. It is deadly in the family. It breaks, it destroys. It's because I think the father and mother were still in competition with one another. I want the affection of this one and you want the affection of that one. They haven't become one. They weren't on the same page. They didn't have the same agenda. Listen, parents, it takes a lot of time to crawl in the hearts of your children, to understand them. If I had a chance to 
bring up my boys again, let me tell you, I would spend more time listening and less time lecturing. To get in the hearts of your kids, not to show favorites, to be equal in all of that. And when there's favoritism in a home and you see it in the home of Abraham, the home of Isaac, the home of Jacob, they had favorites. And part, that was part of the reason for the disaster you see in this whole patriarchal tree. Favorites. And look how Jacob lives up to his name. Slick. Slick. You want to buy a nickname? Slick. How do they get that name? Could it be because they are slick? <laughs> Jacob. Slick. Young man. He wanted to have the inheritance. He was not firstborn. Esau was firstborn. He was secondborn. The inheritance would go to his brother unless something happened. Esau's out hunting. Redneck. Good old boy. Hunting, fishing, outdoorsman, rough. Man, man, that's the way I am. He comes home, he's starving, thirsty. He sees his brother cooked a bowl of pottage, beef stew. And he says, brother, give me some of that stew. I'm starving to death. And then Jacob, the cool operator, seizes on the moment of hunger and extremity of his brother and takes advantage of it. He says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you this whole bowl if you'll sell me your birthright, your inheritance, all the stuff you're going to get when our old man dies, if you'll sell me. I, and so Esau says, hey, if I'm starved to death, all that won't do me any good anyway. <laughs> so he sold him his birthright. Jacob, slick, living up to his name. Then he had all his birthright now. He wanted one other thing. And that was the blessing of his father. So we have the second kind of chicanery that comes in. And Rebecca, oh yes, joins in with Jacob. In order to get now the patriarchal blessing, it's one thing to get the inheritance. It's one thing to get the hands laid on you and you get all the privileges of the family. And now Jacob wanted that. He had the inheritance. Now he wanted the privileges. And so Jacob arranged for his mother to dress him up in Esau's hunting outfit with all the stench that goes with it, gentlemen, all, all the hunters. And, and he goes, and, and, and now Isaac is old. He's blind. He thinks he's going to die. He's ready to give that patriarchal blessing to his favorite son, Esau, but Jacob wants it. So mother takes Jake and they fix a bowl of pottage. Esau goes out to kill some game to feed his dad. And his dad says, I'm going to bless you, Esau, when you come back. And, but Jacob intercedes. He's dressed in hair like his brother. He smells like his brother. And his mother fixes that meal. And he goes in and his dad says, who are you? This is Jacob. He says, I'm Esau. <laughs> you don't sound like Esau. So are you sure you're Esau? Oh, yes, I'm Esau. And he feels of his arms. 
And he says, you're ready to serve me the meal I asked for? How did you kill the game and prepare it so fast? And now Jacob, <coughs> he brings in God. He said, the Lord, your God, helped me to do it. Isn't that he lied twice about who he was. Then he says, God helped me to get the game and prepare it for you. And so make a long story short, the blessing was laid upon Jacob. Quite an operator, isn't he? His mother was in on it. Let me tell you something, parents. When, when parents vie, compete with one another in the family, they undercut one another with children and others, how deadly that is to a marriage. How deadly that is. Favoritism is many times at the root of it. Now what happens? Jacob has to run for his life. Esau says, I'm going to kill you. And so Jacob takes off. Have you ever seen a, a more dirty, rotten scandal in your life? Man, he's a young guy. He's running. And he runs all the way. By the way, what did we learn at uh, Beersheba from Jacob's life? What did we learn? Did you see it up there? We learned that favoritism in the family is always disastrous. But we're going to learn something else because he heads off now. He ends up at a place called Bethel. Now, Jake is on the lamb. He is running, but notice the principle here. When you run away from your sin, when I run away from my sin, we always run into God. The last place we want to be is with God when we're caught in our conscience in our sin. That's the reason a lot of people don't come to church regardless of what they tell you. You know, that's where God is. Oh, man, I, the way I'm living, <laughs> that's the last place I want to be. But you see, you can't run away from your sin because when you do, you always run to God. We see that's exactly what happened to this con artist, Jacob. Look at it over there as he runs all the way to Bethel. Now, Jacob went out from Beersheba. This is the 27th, 28th chapter. And went toward Haran, so he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place, put it on his head. He lay down for a place to sleep. I guess you would think, you know, here he is guilty. He's done all these sorry things to his brother. He's running for his life. Man, now he is trying to go to sleep. I guess he'd have a hard time sleeping, wouldn't he? You know, he'd all this guilt. But look what happened. This is one of the amazing things in all the Bible right here. God comes to him. And he blesses him. He honors him. He tells him what a great life he's going to have. And he says, man, I've got great stuff. Here is this scum, this slick, who has conned his whole family in one way or another, and he's running for his own life, and he meets God, and look what God promises. It's wonderful. He says, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your Isaac, and the God of, uh, Lord of Abraham of Isaac. He just lied to. The land, on which you, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants, and your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad the west, the east, the north, the south. 
Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Now look at this. Get this in context. Here is Jacob, afraid, running by himself, going out in another part of the country. It's night. He feels guilt, and God comes and says, here's stairs reaching all the way up to heaven. And at the top of those stairs is the Lord God himself. And right on the other side is the gate of heaven. He opens up heaven to Jacob and fills it up with all these promises of what God had built in his life and what he would accomplish and what he would do when he was a dirty, rotten scoundrel. My, the grace of God. <laughs> My, the patience of God. My, the long, long view of life with God. How, how overwhelming this is to me. It's overwhelming to you too. You'd think God would zap him. Condemn him. Let a little lightning come. Bang, Jake, you sorry scandal. No, no, God just came with grace and love and forgiveness and promises, and he has a stairway that leads all the way to heaven. By the way, you think heaven's far away? It's not. It's just up those stairs, and angels were coming down and ministering to him. Angels were going up, and there was the Lord God, and there was the very gate of heaven. That's how close it is. That's how close it is. And he showed this to a deceiver, Jacob. What do we learn from that? We learn that when we sin, we run away from our sin. We always ran into God, but God there didn't just zap Jacob. He loved him and promised him and showed him the gate of heaven. Magnificent. <laughs> Unbelievable. And how long do you think that Jake got a chance to look into heaven? I don't know. I guess about uh, six minutes. Six minutes. Then he gets up, and now he's going to meet his match. He's going to Haran. He's going to move in with and be a part of the family of his sister, Rebecca. Not a beautiful mother was she. Brother. He meets Laban, who was as big a con artist as Jacob. And that's what we learn there in this new situation, this new environment of Jacob, that con artists always end up getting conned. Yeah. I can remember years back, we had in our church two guys that I happen to know who were big-time operators. You know, you have seen them, big-time operator. I mean, they had deals going. They were wheeling and dealing. But I discovered pretty quickly they were absolutely four-flushers. You couldn't trust them to walk across the street. But they were wheelers and dealers, and they were always working and scamming and had things going. And they didn't know one another, but I was in a restaurant, and I saw them sitting together. They'd met in church. And I thought to myself, boy, that's going to be a great relationship. <laughs> I couldn't make this up. 
A year, a little more later, they were both in courts of law suing one another in a business deal they got together. Con artists always get cons. Or if you want to say it, whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. Or what goes around comes around. You can say it in many different ways. And that's exactly what happened when Jacob meets his soon-to-be father-in-law, Laban. But look what's happened. I love this story uh, here when he goes to Haran. Chapter 29, and Laban said to Jacob, go, go back, go back to the first part of that. The first time Jacob saw Rachel at a well, get this, it came to pass. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, that'll tell you something, and the sheep of Laban and his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. The first time he saw her, he kissed her and shouted, whoa, and cried. Man, they didn't kiss on the first date. They kissed before they ever had a date. <laughs> Bible, Bible, Bible. And then later on, we read that, verse 18, now Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you for seven years for Rachel, your younger, younger daughter. Your younger daughter. Leah was the older daughter of Laban. So he worked for seven years. And it says in the Bible, those seven years because he loved Rachel so much seemed like just a few days. You know, that's love, isn't it? And then they arranged a wedding. Remember who he's dealing with, con artist, Laban. And so they have a rig, elaborate wedding. I'm sure there were too much drinking going on. And the bride came out all dressed and covered in veils, et cetera, et cetera. And so they had the wedding and they went in for the wedding night. And there was Jacob sort of, you know, all these years he'd worked for Rachel. And the next morning he wakes up, he looks at his bride. Oh, he said, whoa, behold, it was Leah. <laughs> now you talk about a slick operator was that Laban. I mean, he worked seven years to marry Rachel, and here he was, he married Leah, the younger sister. We don't know what was wrong with her. The Bible says she had weak eyes. I don't know what that means. <laughs> and then now, Jacob, the con artist had been con, the ultimate con. Never heard of anything like it before since. Now he goes to Laban, and he just explodes, and Laban says, cool down. You know, you have to marry the younger one first. That's in our culture. And so they, he then married Rachel. Now he has both the daughters. And then he works seven more years, 14 years. He has both the daughters of Laban. And he has a couple of concubines. And 21 years, he had 11 children. And he was a wealthy man because he had fleeced Laban with some selective breeding, and he ended up with more cattle and more possessions than his father-in-law had, and now he's ready to take off, and he goes by the cover of darkness, paraphrasing, he goes by the cover of darkness, and he's running back to home, his hometown, going back to Beersheba, but Laban catches him and challenges him until finally they come to agreement. And here you have what's called the Mizpah blessing. Have you heard of that? 
Oh, we've heard that poet quoted so piously. May the Lord watch over you and me while we're absent one from another. And we use that so piously. But that was a blessing when Laban, the con artist, met this con artist that we're looking at, Jacob, and this is what the blessing was. They were saying, you sorry scum, may the Lord watch you when I'm not with you, and may the Lord watch over you, you scum, when I'm not with you. That's what that blessing is, folks. <laughs> so Jacob takes off. But I think he's got a problem, don't you? He's got to go back home, but guess who's at home? Oh, Esau. I wonder if Esau's got over the fact he stole his inheritance and sold his blessing. I wonder if he's got, he has withdrawn that contract he put on Jacob, kill him on sight. So he sends some gifts ahead to Esau. And told his servant to say, oh, my Lord, Esau, your servant, Jacob, is coming. He wants you to have all these gifts so he'd find favor with you. And the servant did that, and the servant comes back. He said, how did Esau respond? He said he didn't say anything. He just started this way with 400 men. <laughs> read it, read it. You read it. And Jacob said, hmm. So he sends some more gifts to him, the same message and more gifts until finally he, he ends up there by himself. He has sent all of his children, all of his family, all his possessions, all the goats, all the cows, all the camels, all the sheep. He sent everything over across the Jabbok River, and he says, I give everything I have to you, Esau. He's trying to save his hide. Tell me the Bible doesn't tell it like it is, folks. They haven't read it very carefully, have they? You see, in all of this, Jacob, total scum, total scum. He's won, hadn't he? Yeah, he, he fleeced his, his dad, his family. He'd won. He, he'd gone over to Laban. He'd ran a con artist. He had won. And now he's going back home to meet Esau and he's run out of things he can do and now he is by himself at a place called Peniel. And we're going to see what he learned at Peniel. It is that true repentance always leads to brokenness. He's at Peniel. He sent his whole possession. He sent all of his wives, all four of them over there to his brother. He sent all his sheep, all of his oxen. He's by himself there. It is night. And then if you read carefully, he even prays to God and says, God, God, oh, Father, you promised you would make out of me a great people that you'd protect me. And he reminds God of promises he'd made to him years before. I mean, he covers everybody. What scum? What kind of rascal is this? He deals now with God. God, reminding God of what he said, how about that? I mean, how foolish, how arrogant, how pagan can you get? God, you probably, and now he's by himself. 
and he's frightened. Esau keeps coming with 400 men. Doesn't look too good, does it? And then you read carefully the Bible. I wish I had time to exegete every word for you. Take my word for it. We use this as, as Jacob wrestling with God in prayer. Oh, no, 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 no. It was the angel of the Lord who grabbed Jacob. He grabbed Jacob. Jacob didn't grab God. He grabbed Jacob, and they began to have a wrestling match. High school wrestling used to be, I don't know about now, you'd have three rounds, two minutes each. Oh, that's six minutes. This wrestling match took place all night. Jacob, con artist, slick, run out of all things he could do to save his hide, to protect himself. He'd given up all of it. How sorry, how low down he was. But now God, an angel, divinity grabs him and holds onto him and they battle all night until finally God touches his hip and Jacob is crippled. His hip, he, he can't go. He, he, he's finished. He's done for. He's lost. Now he was weak. Now he has nowhere to turn, nowhere to go. And, and this divine person says, Jake, let go of me. You see, he'd lost, but he's clinging. And then the question comes, the angel asks him, what is your name? That's what his father had asked him. He lied to him twice. Now the angel asked, what is your name? He said, I'm Jacob. I'm scum. I'm slick. I'm a con artist. I'm a liar. I, I'm all into myself. I, I care nothing about you or anybody. I, I, I'm at the end. Confession. Honest confession, nowhere to go, bottomed out. And then the angel says, you're not going to be called slick any longer, con artist, liar, cheat, double dealing, dirty, rotten, oh no, no. He's, I'm going to give you a new name and I'm going to name you Israel, 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 prince of God, power with God. You're Israel. The Bible says the sun came up and now Jacob, no, Israel stands and goes to meet Esau. But he has the rest of his life a divine limp, divine limp because he had confessed he had gotten right with God, and now he was ready to face his brother and to face life. Now, make no mistake about it. There was still a residue, if you read the rest of Jacob's life, a residue of this same kind of sliminess that we have seen, but yet now we have a new man beginning of redemption, a divine limp. I wish I had time to read the rest of the story. Esau came and saw him and ran on him and kissed him and they embraced it all. 
what, what, a, what, a, what a fabulous, fabulous moment. Divine limp. When you and I realize that, you know, when we're the strongest is when we're the weakest, when we're broken. And now look at the extremity that God went to to break Jacob so he had a chance of living a life, living up to a name, Israel, Prince of God. No one moving, bow your heads please. The time of confession comes, we go to the table of our Lord. We walk through the life of Jacob. We've learned so very, very much. Lessons from the book, how they have spoken to us. Now we go to the table and we confess our sin because there's some Jacob in every one of us here. So may this be that moment of confession and forgiveness and cleansing by God. And may we have that holy limp. But we'll walk strong as a prince and a princess of the Almighty because of his grace. As we receive the elements, no one moves. It's a holy time. We wait to go to that table that gives us a reminder of the price of redemption. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Well, before we leave you today, Dr. Young is here to answer a couple of questions coming out of the message we've just heard. Throughout the Old Testament, Dr. Young, God uses characters with some pretty scandalous pasts. Do you think God still uses people like that today? Thank God he does, or you and I are in trouble. Uh, yes, God's grace is all-sufficient. His love includes anybody and everybody, anytime, anywhere, any place. And we need to recognize that. You look at the Bible, it has so much candid honesty in it. And you say, my goodness, how could Abraham, of all people, passed his wife off as his sister to protect his hide? And, and then we look in the mirror and say, Look at that in my life. Or we look at others. The beautiful thing is that Jesus takes the least, the last, the lost, the broken, those that others have thrown away, and he brings them back to him, and he gives them forgiveness and a new life and a new about face so they can function and glorify him forever and forever. Jesus specialized on throwaways. One of the problems you and I have when they come and meet with us or they go to church is bad people, adulterous people, sinning people, profane people, egotistical people, throwaways of society people, they went to Jesus. Why? For him to judge them? No, because they saw in him God. They saw in him forgiveness. They saw in him that second chance that we all need so many times through life. Yes, God can take anybody anywhere and whatever the circumstances and make them into brand new people 
through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Very helpful. Thank you, Dr. Young. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Winning Walk is a listener-supported ministry. Your prayers and financial support allow us to bring proven truth to listeners around the world. Connect with us at winningwalk.org. That's winningwalk.org.